here we are in the hustle and bustle of a major supermarket in the UAE. And as I walk down the aisle, there are fruit and vegetables from all over the world. The produce is clearly labeled with both its name and country of origin. There's food from this region as well as from India, China, Pakistan and many European countries. There's even onions from the United States and Australia, kiwis from New Zealand and Chile. However, what catches the eye is there's a dedicated space for local produce. It says in bold, proudly from UAE. It has peppers, carrots, tomatoes and all kinds of leafy vegetables. It's amazing how the UAE's produce has become so diversified. Over the years, farms have been modernized and new crops have been introduced. This supermarket aisle gives an insight into the country's progress. The UAE aims to be the most food secure nation by 2051, according to the National Food Security Strategy. But will this ambition be realized and can local farms keep up with the demand? You're listening to Beyond the Headlines. I'm your host, Nalanjana Gupta. And in this episode, we explore the future of farming in the UAE. If you want to get all the latest from Beyond the Headlines, hit subscribe in your podcast app. Deep in the desert of Dubai, a pineapple farm is thriving. It might seem far-fetched, but the Emirati owner is using hydroponics, a process of growing crops without soil. Abdul Latif Albanna produces thousands of pineapples each year on his farm using nutrient-based water solutions. In the UAE's hot and dry climate, traditional farming practices are a challenge, with farms being limited in the crops they can produce. That's why local farms are turning to hydroponics and vertical farming solutions. As we walk through the greenhouses at Abdul Latif's farm, he explains how difficult it is to grow the tropical fruit in the country's harsh climate. Each of the four greenhouses are equipped with fans and automated irrigation that work around the clock throughout the year. It is not easy. It, uh, it needs a greenhouse and a cold greenhouse with uh, not more than uh, 30, 29, 28 temperature with a little bit of humidity. So otherwise it will not grow. It will grow very weak. We are doing the hydroponic system. And the hydroponic system, you are, we are saving 90% of the water. I tried one of the pineapples and I can say without the slightest exaggeration, it was the sweetest I ever had. In a country where about 90% of the food is imported, Abdul Latif's homegrown success could inspire people to think about food security. Scientists at the International Centre for Biosaline Agriculture in Dubai say the sector also needs to explore non-conventional crops. I visited the research centre, which is experimenting with salt, drought and heat-resilient crops such as quinoa, salicornia and millets. These crops can grow well in environments with poor soil quality, little rainfall and saline groundwater, like in the UAE and other marginal environments. 
headquartered in the UAE, the International Centre for Biosaline Agriculture or ICBA operates in more than 40 countries. Dr. Tharif Alzabi, Director General of the Centre, gave me a tour of the 100-hectare facility on a golf cart. Our first stop was at the ghaf tree planted by the President Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed Al Nahyan when he visited the centre this year to mark World Environment Day. The ghaf tree is the national tree of the UAE and is known for its ability to grow in challenging environments, much like the UAE itself. As we drove around the area, I saw several research stations where scientists try out innovative techniques to grow crops. Using reject brine from its on-site desalination plant, Dr. Tarifa says the centre has been able to grow a variety of halophytes or salt-loving plants such as salicornia and quinoa. This is the integrated aqua agriculture system. It's one of the research that indicate how can we really and what can we do with the unconventional source of water. We're talking here on what can we do uh, with the rejected water from desalination, brine or brackish water. The statement of the problem is the brackish and the brine, it's, it's uh, wastewater that sometimes is injected in the ground or thrown in the sea and that causes even more harm to the environment. So this is a way where it can be utilized to grow fish and use the desalinated uh, fresh water to irrigate um, different uh, crops and use the saline water to irrigate uh, grow fish and irrigate holophytic crops. And with, there will be a number of experiments also to explore what other type of fish can be grown in such saline water. We collaborated with some private sector in the field of catering where we were able to collaborate with them and uh, produce a number of uh, products that are made out of siliconia and some of them are now in the in the market. The center have been doing a number of research for the last decade on quinoa. Quinoa is a superfood, it's very nutritionist and also uh, suitable to grow in our environment. So there were five or four different types, uh, genotypes have been identified by the researcher that are suitable for our environment. So we try to look at the complete value chain and how can we really ensure that crops like quinoa uh, or millet uh, are uh, incorporated in our food and um, dietary system. Salicornia cultivation started in 2021 in a number of farms across the country as part of an experiment by the ICBA. The asparagus-like superfood has already made its way to the UAE's food industry. Global Food Industries, which is a frozen food manufacturer in Sharjah, uses salicornia as a salt replacement in its healthy burgers. Tina Sigismund is the head of marketing and innovation. Because it grows uh, under sea land conditions, um, it, has a, it has a naturally um, rich, uh, salty taste. Um, at the same time, it's, it's low in, in, in sodium, a, a lot less, uh, less sodium than in, in regular salt. Um, for that purpose, we are able to use it as a salt replacement in our, uh, in our burgers. Uh, by using it, we are reducing the sodium content by 40%. The product has been received uh, very positively. There's been great interest. The challenges which we are still uh, facing is, uh, is the lack of awareness. A lot of consumers don't know um, what siliconia is, the benefits the plant has, um, but in, in general, it's been very well received. At another research station at ICBA, there are more than 100 date palms. This experiment focuses on measuring the performance of date palms 
when they are irrigated by varying levels of saline water. Dr. Tarifa pointed out that the height of the trees changed with the level of salinity in the water. This is the oldest experiment uh, for us here at ICBA. It has uh, 18 varieties of date palm and there is a number of experiments in fact it has been done to manage the productivity of the date palm under different uh, saline condition of irrigated water. If we look at the date palm, we will see uh, the tallest one that are uh, being irrigated by uh, less uh, saline water and the shortest one with the highest uh, salinity. And again, one of the experiments also done uh, to manage and calculate the uh, water consumption of the date palm. Scientists measure the amount of sap flowing in the trunk of a date palm and determine the exact amount of water the tree requires. The experiment helps conserve water in the desert. The ICBA also does comparative studies between traditional and more high-tech greenhouses. The aim is to improve water and energy efficiency. Dr. Hisham Fatnasi is a senior horticulture scientist at the centre. He took us to one of the greenhouses that uses air distribution ducts to cool the farm. So for the conventional greenhouse that use uh, fan, and, uh, fan and pad uh, cooling system, they use a lot of water. So here, for example, we look for another way to cool the greenhouse by, by using this air duct distribution or called air distribution. We have 30% less of consumption of water in this high-tech uh, greenhouse compared to the conventional. Now we test uh, cherry tomato, now we are uh, testing a cucumber. And uh, for the next season, we'll, we'll look for the high-value crops, uh, example, strawberries or other high-value crops. We invest double money uh, between this high-tech greenhouse to, uh, compared to the conventional one. But at, in terms of yield, we will have more yield in the high-tech greenhouse compared to the conventional one. The UAE is regarded as a food-secure nation because of its ability to source food from other countries. Despite its high reliance on imports, it ranked 35 among 113 countries in the Global Food Security Index in 2021. But the country has developed an ambitious strategy, aiming to rank number one in the index by 2051. We spoke with Pratima Singh from Economist Impact, based in the United States. She leads the Global Food Security Index. As you know, um, Economist Impact has been uh, looking at global food security through the lens of the Global Food Security Index for 10 years now, over 10 years. So essentially, the way that we define the index is uh, through four pillars. Uh, affordability, we need food to be affordable. Uh, availability, which looks at availability of food, but also access to food. The third pillar is quality and safety. So here we're looking at um, how populations are able to access food, but not just any food, more nutritious and healthy food. And then the fourth pillar that we look at uh, is on natural resources and resilience. This was recently introduced in 2020 because it was important to examine food security and climate risk together. We know that these two are inextricably linked. At the top of the index are European countries, Ireland, Austria, UK, Finland and Switzerland. Pratima Singh explains how the UAE could improve its ranking. One thing to note is that the UAE's strong performing categories are availability and quality and safety. 
So what we are highlighting here is that, of course, ensuring that food is available, but also accessible to its population is an area that the UAE has done well in. And even in terms of quality and safety, we see that is, in fact, quality and safety is the highest scoring pillar for the UAE. And it's done a, a great job in that category. Now, on the other side, one common thing we've seen across almost all countries is that the fourth category of natural resources and resilience remains an area of focus for the UAE. Uh, we've seen sort of a stable performance between the 2020 and 2021 years on this category. Uh, but that said, it's still its uh, uh, lowest scoring category. And so focusing on natural resources and resilience can be helpful. And then the other category where we see attention needed is on affordability. And there also um, the UAE can continue making efforts in order to improve its spending. In terms of natural resources, there are a couple of different things that we look at. Uh, of course, we look at land and water management systems, but more importantly, water quantity, quality for ag, that remains um, an area to prioritize. It's also around political commitment to adaptation. And so here we look at whether there are early warning measures for, for climate risk, um, what are the policies in place for agricultural adaptation uh, that are put in place. And so uh, these are all areas of focus that most countries can, can work on, uh, but specifically around ensuring that water and exposure is managed uh, through political commitment and just essentially putting in place certain policies to adapt to a deteriorating climate uh, um, is important in the agricultural sector. So we want to think about uh, generally and, and even in the UAE how agriculture can not just be sort of a driver of climate risk but also can help mitigate and adapt and so agricultural adaptation can be a key focus. And many efforts are underway in the UAE to find solutions for soil recovery and freshwater scarcity. For instance, Emirati professor Dr. Saeed Al-Hassan has built an innovative device that turns seawater into fresh water without using electricity. I visited his farm in Abu Dhabi that has more than 100 date palm trees. Currently, the farm is irrigated by water pulled from the underground. The underground water here is salty and we have to pass it through a reverse osmosis uh, unit. So this reverse osmosis unit separates the water into two parts. One part is uh, fresh water suitable for irrigation. The other part is saltier than the underground water and we call it brine. And we basically have to uh, uh, put it back into the ground. So uh, at Manhattan we develop a technology to allow us to produce water from open water surfaces. The brine that is produced in our reverse osmosis unit uh, is basically moved to a pool and we place our devices in this pool. So with uh, solar radiation, the water from this pool will evaporate and then we capture it and it condenses during uh, night time and that water is collected and used for irrigation. So uh, uh, our unit is, uh, is, is unique in the following sense. Uh, we do not require electricity to run this unit. And by default, uh, we do not you know, burn any fossil fuels in producing the water. In 2019, the Khalifa University professor launched Manhat, a startup that uses water distillation technology to tackle water scarcity. He also secured patents for the innovation. In future, Dr. Al-Hassan hopes to use his invention to build floating farms using the fresh water collected 
to irrigate and grow crops right at the source. The UAE is also working with partners in other countries, such as Rexan Technology Group, based in China. They have created sand that has higher water retention and air circulation capabilities than regular desert sand. At farms in Rasul Khaimah and Abu Dhabi, the technology has transformed desert grounds to arable land. And it is now being used to grow fig trees, pulses, beans, tomatoes, chilies, mangoes and lemons. During a visit to the Rasul Khaimah farm, I met Chandra Dek, who brought the Rexan technology to the UAE after a collaboration with the Chinese company. Our breathable sand is a special kind of a sand which is made from desert sand and it has got a special property of breathability, air permeability, uh, so that roots get more oxygen. On top of it, while it is allowing the air circulation to the roots, it also got water retention. Because it can retain the water for a longer duration, the plants will get able to suck up all the water and uh, the water consumption for the plants is about 80% reduced. He brought a pot made of rec sand to demonstrate how the technology works. He filled it with water and blew into it from the side. Air bubbles appeared in no time. This is the speciality of this breathable pot. It is not a magic I'm performing. It doesn't matter which side I, I want to blow. Any side, it allows the air. The UN estimates the world's population will increase by 2 billion people in the next 30 years to 9.7 billion in 2050. Farmers will feel a lot of pressure to keep up with the food demand. And that's where robotics technology, from drones to autonomous tractors to robotic arms, could play a huge role. Agricultural robots are known to increase production by assisting farmers in various activities such as harvesting, weed control, sorting and packing. I spoke with Salah Sukaria, Professor of Robotics and Intelligent Systems at the University of Sydney. Since 2005, he and his team have built drones and robots for use in agriculture. So my work started with air robotics or, or drones, as uh, people like to call them nowadays. Uh, and we use drones in the context of agriculture for detecting weeds, so invasive plants uh, that affect agriculture production. We did that for about uh, five, ten years, and then after that we moved to ground robotics. And with ground robotics, we use them on farms now to do things like uh, weeding, so removing weeds, uh, spraying individual plants, and also using AI, artificial intelligence techniques, to be able to determine the health of the plant. So our focus on ground robotics was to build lightweight solar electric robots. Uh, this is important because if they're heavy robots, then they can do soil compaction and that can damage the ground when you use them repeatedly. Uh, the robots are two-wheel, sometimes four-wheel robots. They have sensors underneath them looking down at the plants as they go over the plants. And they have real-time AI algorithms. So as the sensors are collecting data, the AI algorithms can determine things such as the size of the plant, whether the plant is healthy or not, um, and we also added uh, tools underneath the robot. 
so that you can do things such as spraying an individual plant, for example, if you have to spray fungicide because the plant has a fungus on it or some sort of pest. But we also can detect individual weeds in between the plants and we can either spray just that weed uh, very, very precisely with target micro doses of chemicals, which means we use less chemical, or we have little mechanical tools that can remove the weed um, as the robot's going past without damaging the plant. And if you do that continuously, then you can remove the weeds when they're really small, and that gives the greatest amount of nutrients back to the crops that you're trying to grow. Professor Salah explains how countries around the world have embraced robotics in agriculture over the years. When we first started out for ground robotics, there was not many countries around the world that were doing Australia was one. There was some activity happening in America and also some other activity happening in France, uh, in Europe. And that was predominantly where uh, large-scale agriculture is. And, and because of large-scale agriculture, a lot of people were concerned about reduction in chemicals, less labour, um, and also trying to deal with changes in the climate. And so that's where you saw a lot of the activity happening. As time went on and the technology started to mature and get better, we started to see the technology rolled out to other countries. Um, so, for example, but still generally first world countries, for example, so we're in New Zealand, uh, other parts of Europe. But in 2016, we got our first uh, grant from the government to explore the use of technology uh, in the Asia Pacific. So we got to go to Indonesia, Fiji and Samoa, so small islands, uh, where the agriculture is very different and also the economics is very different, smallholder farmers. But even though they're smallholder farmers, they still have the same concerns that we had in Australia, for example. So there was lack of labour, the desire to reduce the amount of chemicals. And in terms of the cost, there's, there's two models that are currently working at the moment now around the world. One is where a farmer buys a robot. Um, and as long as their farm is um, uh, relatively clean and stable, generally robots will work well. You can buy a robot and then you can, as a farmer, you can add your own tools onto that robot. And you just tell the robot to follow the rows and, and do whatever activity that it needs to do. Another model is what we call a service model where the farmer's not buying the robot, but buying the service that the robot can deliver. Um, as an example, uh, weeding, uh, which we talked about before, or spraying, or even in the future harvesting. The cost can be, if you buy a robot uh, nowadays, just to just a robot that works, it can be from $10,000 US up to about $200,000, $250,000 US, depending on the size of the robot, the capabilities that you're looking for, and the, and the, the duration of the robot. The long-term impact of the COVID-19 pandemic has had a surprising benefit for local farmers and food security in the UAE. Farms are reaping the rewards of an increase in demand for locally produced food. It has also encouraged local farms and F&B businesses to invest in technology to improve production. But how easy or difficult is it to deploy robots in the UAE? Professor Salah explains the factors that should be taken into consideration. So temperature, humidity, weather, they're all, all elements that uh, one needs to factor in when they're designing robots and building robots or, or buying robots. But my uh, understanding would be that it's not, it wouldn't be a difficult uh, problem to be able to either build or buy a robot that works in the conditions that you would find in the, in the UAE. Um, the Australian desert environment where we grow Wheat is no different um, humidity and temperature-wise. It can be quite um, high as well. 
Um, so the ratings, the, the ratings that you want for dust, water, um, temperature are generally well known. It's a little bit easier when you have like glass houses and vertical farms and hydroponics because you're in a controlled environment. So that's usually, and also the structure internally of how you grow the plants is also very much fixed, which makes it easier for robotics to work in those environments. The late Sheikh Zayed bin Sultan Al Nahyan, the founding father of the UAE, once said, Give me agriculture and I'll give you civilization. Back then, he envisioned that developing local farms could pave the way for economic prosperity. The country's goal for 2051 is to be a world-leading hub in innovation-driven food security. Despite the harsh environment, the ideas are fertile and possibilities just beginning. From hydroponics to artificial intelligence, from robots to solar technology, the future is green. You have been listening to Beyond the Headlines. I have been your host, Nilanjana Gupta. Thanks to all our guests. This week's episode was produced by Arthur Edison with additional help from Aisha Khan and Cody Combs. If you like this episode of Beyond the Headlines, please subscribe and leave us a review.